0: How not only are we going to always have wars and always going to have death, but that death was going to be magnified and magnified and magnified. And we looked at the history of disease, the history of earthquakes, the history of wars themselves, and see that, that as man progresses and as the years progress from the point of this discourse on the Mount of Olives, man's capability to afflict death has vastly grown. And when we looked at the reality Of wars in context to the final war, to that Armageddon war that we read about in the book of Revelation, and how we came to understanding what it means to be a pre pre -pre tribulationist, a mid tribulationist, or post tribulationist. And really, not to get too in in depth into that, you can go back and listen to the sermon uh, online from last week, but we came to the clear understanding through scripture. And particular, through the teaching of the Apostle Paul, that we will, in fact, be here during the tribulation years. And for myself, I really hold fast to a post-tribulation timeline. So that really leads us into verse nine of this discourse of Jesus to his disciples, and we'll read it together. Chapter, seven. chapter thirteen. We're, we're continuing in, and it says, "But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils." And you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake. To bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour. For For it is not for you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And father their, their, their children. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So by God's grace we're going to look at that this morning. Just before we continue together let's just pray. And ask the Holy Spirit to guide us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time this morning that we get to turn to your word. We pray, Father, for the understanding, Lord, through your Holy Spirit, of the meaning of this text. We pray, Father, as we continue through the next weeks, Lord, by your grace, that we will know deeper, a better understanding of what is to take place in the end. But for this morning, Father, we simply ask that you give us an open heart and open ears to hear this word this morning. And we pray, Father, that Your Holy Spirit pierce us, Father, to the bone and to the marrow, that we may come to the understanding of what it means to be in distress as believers and followers of you, of if and when we face persecution. Father, be with us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we've looked at a lot of things through this discourse over the past number of weeks. And really, this morning, as, as we read that, coming out of earthquakes in various places and there will be famines and these are but the beginnings of birth pains. And last week was quite a a scary passage to understand that the most horrific things that we have ever seen happen in war are merely the beginnings of birth pains of what is to happen in the end. As we read in verse nine, when he says, be on your guard for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues. And really what we've seen so far is every single prophecy that Jesus is making through this discourse has come to the fore. He prophesied the destruction of the temple. It was destroyed in 70 AD. He prophesied how there's going to be wars and rumours of wars and pestilence and earthquakes. And they're going to get worse and worse and worse as history progresses. And really this morning we're going to focus in on specifics to do with the disciples and an overflow from them onto us with what's going to happen to the disciples. At this stage, remember it's Holy Week, always set in the context of what we're reading. Jesus had his triumphant entry, and now we come to Wednesday of that week. And the disciples are still anxious and waiting and longing for Jesus to to start this kingdom come ministry. And on the way out of the temple, as we've read over the last number of weeks, they were completely awestruck with the buildings, awestruck with, with the religious system that was in place. And yet Jesus clearly tells them that it's all coming, crashing down. And he starts to tell them of all the things that will and shall come to pass through the ages and through their specific generation. And what he's saying here, whenever he says, that they be on your guard for they will deliver you over to councils and to the synagogues. He's talking about Jewish persecution. For all of us who know the Apostle Paul, he understood this so well. The Apostle Paul, who was delivered over to the synagogues and was delivered over to the councils, and the synagogues and the councils at this time in history was the place in which you went to court, basically. And in the synagogues where they would have established whether or not you were guilty of apostasy, whether or not you were guilty of blaspheming God, and on many occasions, five in particular that we know of, Paul says that he went to the synagogue and was given the due penalty of having 39 lashes. What they would give you was 39 whips to the back. And they give 39 because it was custom and law that you could not have any more than 40. And in case of them accidentally giving you 41, they always stopped at 39. So immediately here, Jesus is pointing them to the fact that you will, you shall, you are going to be delivered over to the synagogues and to the councils. And he says, and you will be beaten. So immediately Jesus is making it clear to the disciples, at this time, you are going to be delivered over when I am gone, and you will be beaten. As I said, the Apostle Paul knew this well. We've talked about these beatings in the past. To have your back lashed 39 times could take upwards to six months to fully heal Your back would have been basically turned to jelly as your skin was ripped apart by these whips. A lot of the times they would have used whips with bits of bone and bits of metal on the back, just depending on what synagogue you were in and, and how much they wanted to inflict pain. So you can imagine for the Apostle Paul what it would have been like to have your back shredded, so to speak, once. And then to have it heal and those wounds to close over, and then once again to have them lacerated again across your back. The second time, opening up already formed and healed hard tissue wounds. Third time, the fourth time, and ultimately the fifth time. Jesus is making it clear here that they persecuted me and that the servant is not greater than the master and they are going to persecute you. This is a prophetic promise that Jesus (coughs) made That did come to the past. We read through the book of Acts how each and every one of the disciples were indeed brought from synagogues, were indeed seeing these things come to the fore. So, immediately, once again, you're seeing evidence of the eschatology of Jesus coming to the fore as we know it through the book of Acts. And he goes on and he says, And you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings. For sake. governors and kings. Not only will you be persecuted by the by the Jews, you will and you shall be persecuted by the Gentiles. You will stand before their kings. You will stand before their uh, as it says there, the kings and governors. So ultimately, Jesus makes a claim: you're going to be persecuted by the Jews and you're going to be persecuted by the Gentiles. But ultimately, we have to ask why. Why are they going to be beaten? Why are they going to be persecuted by the Jews and the Gentiles? And Jesus tells us, he says, you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness. In other words, the good news is going to be made manifest through the very fact that you will be beaten for my name's sake the fact that you will stand before governors and kings, the fact that you will and that you shall be persecuted, but yet you will bear witness to the truth of Scripture, to the truth of the Gospel, which is the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. To bear witness, and he goes on to say, he leaves my place this morning. To bear witness before them in verse 10, and the good news must first be proclaimed to all nations. How is this going to be beneficial? Because as you bear witness, the proclamation of the gospel will be evident. Not only will you be beaten for my name's sake, not only will you be persecuted, but the gospel is going to move through you 12, standing before me. It's going to go through you simple men, and it's going to reach the entire Earth, it's gonna go everywhere through you because the Holy Spirit is gonna sustain you in that moment of heavy, heavy persecution, and you will stand the test and you will be a witness for me and you will be a proclaimer, a speaker of the gospel. Now we understand there whenever he says that and the gospel must first be proclaimed. That word proclaimed in itself. Is a past tense verb. So Jesus is saying here a future past tense verb. In other words, it will be proclaimed. It has already happened in the sovereignty of God and it is going to come to the four and two past. It is part of Jesus' eschatology of proof that we stand and we sit here this morning of evidence of the truth of God's word, the inerrancy of Scripture, and the fact that Jesus' proclamation did in fact come. To the past, it did not stay in Judah. It did not stay in Samaria. It went to an entire world, and we now, in our generation, nearly the entirety of the world have heard the gospel that started through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ and the teaching of the truth of Scripture to these disciples. So Jesus is giving them hope. Yes, you're going to be delivered over. Yes, you're going to face persecution, but. The truth is going to go to the ends of the world through you. And for many of them, they might have been thinking in their minds, well, how is this going to come to pass? Remember, these disciples did not have the New Testament that we have today, but they did have the Old Testament. So return with me, please, to the book of Isaiah 59. In fact, we'll turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 51. Book of Isaiah, chapter 51, verse 1. Just before we read this, we have to understand the mindset of the apostles at this stage. They were thinking this morning, they were thinking this week, as the crowds were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, as they were shouting the King of Kings, as they were laying palm branches and their coats down before Christ, they thought in their minds that the prophecy that Jesus had made up to this point, right through the Gospels, about how anybody who comes after me has to deny himself. Whoever wants to follow me has to pick up his cross daily and deny himself. That that mother and father will come against each other. That you have to hate your mother, hate your father to be able to be my disciple. All these words that were given to the disciples, they may have thought had already come to the past. They may have thought this is finally it, the kingdom come in their mindset. And as they stand on that Mount of Olives, if you place yourself in their shoes, you might think it's hard to believe that the massiveness of the Jewish system at that time, the religious system that was prevalent through the Pharisees and scribes, the temple itself with its Herodian stones, how on earth are us twelve of which one tomorrow night is going to give you over and trade you for a manner of coins? How is it ever going to come to pass? And I guarantee you that this, this verse... In Isaiah 51, would come to their understanding. We'll read it together. Chapter 51, verse 1. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but, but one when I called him, and that I might bless him and multiply him. How are you 12 going to impact the world? Remember how God works. He took one man, and from that one man whose wife was barren, he was able to raise up an entire people and an entire nation for himself. The Jews themselves can all look back to the rock from which they came, which was Abraham. And if God can do that for one old man who's married to an old woman who can't have kids and can make his descendants like the stars and like the sands and the seashore, what can God do through the power of the Holy Spirit through you twelve? If you seek after righteousness and follow after his word. And we read on in in Isaiah 51, verse 7, where it says, Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, Nor be dismayed at their revelings. In other words, if you know who I am, if my law is truly in your heart, if you desire and you know righteousness, do not fear man. When Jesus is telling them you will be delivered over, you will be beaten. It is up to you twelve to bring the gospel to the nations. But you have no need to fear man. Because if the word of God is written in your hearts. If you desire righteousness. You have no need to fear man. And it goes on in verse 12. I. I am he who comforts you. You are. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies. This entire book. Verse of Isaiah is all pointing to the coming of the Messiah. And it's to give strength, as to give weight, it's to give hope to these disciples who could turn to these very pages and see whom they were to fear and to see the power of God at work. It goes on in verse 16, and says, And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the worth and saying to Zion, You are my people. Good time to read... All of this, we could see the strength and the weight of understanding who God is and who it is that we're meant to fear. And just turn with me, as I said, in the beginning to the book of Isaiah 59, chapter 59, verse 14. And this was true for the disciples, and I believe it's true for us today. Verse 14 says, justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and a cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. It was true for the time of the disciples, we know for a fact. To turn to righteousness, to turn away from evil, to turn away from false religion, was to make yourself a prey. We now are in a time and a season in redemptive history whenever you truly stand on the truth and the Word of God as being inherent. And the very verse that we want to put over the pulpit here which says the Word of our God will stand forever. Which is taken from the very book of Isaiah. We have to understand that God's Word never changes. It did not change for the disciples and does not change for us. Do we understand that for each and every one of us here, like the twelve on the Mount of Olives, whenever you're going to seek after righteousness, whenever you're going to stand on the word of truth, whenever you're going to step into the public arena and the public squares, you are going to be a prey. What is a prayer? A prayer is something that is hunted. A prayer is something that wants to be caught and devoured and killed. Which is the very thing that happened to each and every one of the disciples. And we have to understand that that's what's coming for us. I had the displeasure of going to a, church, a church's organized alternative Halloween this week. I'm not going to say what church it is, it doesn't matter. I'm not even going to say where it is. The church spends their entire missional budget on this event. Fireworks, free barbecue, games for the kids, everything. As I walked in, my kids said to me, why have you brought us to a pagan church? That was their words, not mine. Because the music that was playing in the open air arena was not Christian music. It wasn't even new apostolic reformation music. It was flat out, full blown, secular music. There was no mention of Jesus. There was no interceding point without the time of which there were some. I would imagine thousand people there, and at no point did the pastor nor anybody else within that church think it would be relevant to step up and take the opportunity to present the gospel. The kids didn't get anything whenever they were getting their sweets. There was children there dressed as demons and as the devil himself and witches. And you can set all that aside because you understand that you're stepping into the secular realm. But most of the people that were there were quote-unquote Christian. Now, they did have one thing, which I didn't know what it was, and I had a Google when I went home. They had a little tiny stall in this vast place that you could walk into, and you got an apple, and you could coat it or cover it in milk chocolate and wrap it up with sprinkles and everything else. And there was a small table with a couple of arts and crafts that was called Messy Church. Maybe you haven't heard of Messy Church. Let me enlighten you to Messy Church. And you tell me whether or not Messy Church makes you a prayer. Messy Church is official church like we said this morning. But who wants this? Get rid of the pastor get rid of the pulpit, get rid of reading the Word of God. And what they do is they bring in families. And this isn't just for kids, this isn't evangelism, this is church. This is Sunday service church. And they bring you in and you play games and you do arts and crafts and you eat together and you have a jolly good old fun. And at some point during that time, they take a small little minute to give a very simple light evangelical, supposedly, message, which is mostly a Bible story, like Noah, or something like that that the kids enjoy. Everybody leaves, everybody had a good time, they were entertained, they were not challenged in their sin, there was no word of being a pagan and being bound for hell, and the Archbishop of Canterbury backs it. This is the way the church is going. No longer do we put ourselves in a position where we could be oppressed. No longer we put ourselves in a position where we're going to come against opposition. We enter into the world, we look at like the world, we sound at like the world, get rid of everything that is deemed quote unquote church because the people don't want it. Of course they don't want it because they're lost, blind, and dead in their sin. The only people who want this are those who are born again and regenerative of spirit. He will hunger and thirst for righteousness. So Jesus is pointing us to this, the fact that this is going to happen, and pointing it to the disciples. They're going to beat you. They're going to deliver you over. They're going to hit you. Why? Because of me. Why are your friends going to despise you as a Christian? Because the very fact that you're in the presence is like having God Himself in the presence, because the Holy Spirit dwells within you. Therefore, your friends should not be able to stand the very moment that they're telling you a crude joke, lying, cheating, stealing, or indulging in fornication, or whatever it is. They should be completely challenged to the fact that Jesus Christ Himself is standing beside them in you. I should lead them to repentance. They should understand that what they're doing is wrong. We come to Jesus as we are. Yes, we can't change ourselves. But when we come into the presence of Christ, when we come into the presence of church, we should feel that conviction. Our hearts should race. We should feel uncomfortable because you've just entered into a dwelling place of God's people. You should have entered into a place where the Holy Spirit resides and hits you like a sledgehammer on the door on the way in. That's what Jesus is saying to the twelve. I'm going to send you out with my Holy Spirit. They're going to deliver you over. They're going to beat you. They're going to flog you. They're going to do all kinds of manner of things to you. But no one thing. You will stand the test. Because if you are truly filled with the Holy Spirit, they could take you today and set you on fire, which they have done in church history. And you will not account. Because you have a treasure worth more than anything in this world. Imagine if someone had stood up at that time with the free barbecue and all this free stuff and fireworks going off and everything else and opened up the word of God and preached and taught and led people to conviction. That would have been good in the midst of free burgers. No, the church is a place where you come and get entertained and your kids get taught a wee wishy-washy Bible story with no depth or truth maybe in it and you leave, and you've had a messy church, and your life stays messy, and there's no difference between you and the pagan. That is not going to reach the nations. Turn back with me, if you will, to the Gospel Mark. The Gospel must first be proclaimed, verse 10, to all nations, and verse 11, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over. It gets worse, 12. When, not if, when they bring you to trial. Deliver you over means deliver to death. You're going to get beat for my name, sake. You're going to be a witness for me. You are going to proclaim the gospel. And the very blood of you, my martyrs, are going to be the seeds of churches. This is what he's saying to them. And that's exactly what happened. When they deliver you over. And it says... Do not be anxious. If I told you, like Jesus is telling them, if you stand for righteousness, if you stand for truth, you will be a prey. They're going to come for you, they're going to want to kill you. But know one thing don't be anxious. Why, Jesus? Are you going to deliver us from the death? Are you going to snatch us? out of the midst of that heavy persecution? No. One thing you should be anxious about. If you have been taken this morning out to death, for Christ's sake, because you're a witness and a proclaimer of truth, the one thing you should be anxious about, what will be my last words? doesn't matter if you kill me to, to die again, the Apostle Paul said. But when they take me to the gallows, and when they put the noose around my neck, or when they torture me, or whatever they're going to do to me, do it if you want, for I have no fear of you, for I have fear of the one who not only can kill the body, but can damn the soul to everlasting hell. I want one thing that I'm going to be anxious about. What is going to be the last words to come out of my lips? The last proclamation of the truth. Will it be that Christ is sufficient and worthy of my death? That's the only thing that Jesus points out here. He says, when they deliver you over to death, don't be anxious. (coughs) Beforehand of what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Mind-blowing if you think of that. I'm not going to deliver you. So don't be anxious wondering when I'm going to step in and snatch you out. I could but I'm not going to. Because the very fact that they're going to put you to death is going to be the very seed and the very saying that what you believe in is true. But just don't be anxious by one thing. What do you are to say? This happened to the twelve. It happened to all the disciples of Christ throughout this week. We had time this morning, there's a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs that chronicalizes all the history of the persecution of the church. But just to give us a flavor this morning, what happened to these men who heard these words? Peter, he proclaimed the gospel. He stood for truth. He established the church of God. And he was taken and crucified on a cross. An axe shaped cross upside down. James. Pastor James. Thrown 100 feet from the temple. Why? Because he proclaimed the gospel. And when he survived the 100 foot fall. They then went and beat him with clubs. John. They boiled him in oil. And he survived miraculously. And when he survived, he then was taken and sent to Patmos where he was there to mine. The only one out of the one standing before Christ in this very discourse who would live and die peaceably. Andrew. He was taken to Greece and he was crucified on a cross again, an axe shaped cross. But before they did that, they took him and seven soldiers scourged him. Seven men beat him. And as he walked towards that very X-shaped cross, he saluted the cross for all to see. And for all to say, it must be true, it has to be true, for no man would take a scourging like that and walk towards the cross and salute it. And I'm going to quote what was apparently said when he walked to it. Andrew apparently said, I have longed, desired and expected this happy hour. How can he walk to that cross after being scourged, salute for all the see, and say, I've longed for this happy hour where my life will be at an end and I will go to be with my Father in heaven. But it didn't stop there for Andrew. He lived another two days, and he spent the entirety of that two days preaching and exhorting the gospel to every person around him and to the very men that beat him. And we think it is offensive to play Christian music in a Christian coffee shop. We think it's offensive to stand up on a stage in a public arena and deliver the gospel. Andrew did not say, I'm going to have an event and give free food and free stuff and mention nothing to do with the gospel and call it the church. He went to his death because he stood for righteousness and he became a prayer for the demonic and for the devil and for the evil people in this world. Matthew, stabbed in Ethiopia. Thomas, speared to death in India. Nathaniel, fled to death with a whip. Those flayed things, skinned alive. Paul, as we know, tortured on many occasions, and at the end he was finally tortured again and beheaded by Nero himself. Mark, the very book we're reading. What happened to him? He was dragged through the city until dead. (coughs) Luke was hanged under an olive tree. Jude was shot to death with arrows. Theus was stoned and beheaded and Barnabas was stoned to death. And that's just but few. I was reading in Fox's book of martyrs, three women in the early church who were taken. Not Apostles, not biblical disciples that we learn and read about. Three simple women. And they were taken to the Roman Colosseum, where they were first beaten, whipped, tortured by many men in the center of that Colosseum. They then brought beasts out, according to historical Roman artifacts or or, uh, uh, writings. And when the beasts come out, the beasts can attack them. So the crowd roared and shouted for the gladiators to come out. The gladiators come out and slaughtered two of the women in such a horrific manner that even the people in the crowd were ready to shout mercy. And one woman stood after all this happened with one simple thing to do. Not God, deliver me. Let me follow God. He sustains the end. And let me proclaim truth. She was asked to recant. She said no. And they barbarically butchered her in ways that I don't want to get into. From that very thing, the church writer said that the crowds were so convicted of what must be true that many of them turned to follow Christianity themselves. This is a proclamation of Christ and the disciples, and a proclamation to us. The reality is, For everyone in this room, you do not face death for standing on the word of truth. You know what you face? Losing friends. Not being maybe as popular. It seems to be a big deal in a debate if somebody stands up and says that homosexuality is wrong and abortion is murder. Verse 12. Brother will deliver brother over to death and father his children. Not only will it be the synagogues, not only will it be the Gentiles. It's going to be families. For those that come to faith in places around the world that maybe follow Islam, you will be put to death, not by a stranger, but by your own family. Fathers and mothers will beat and kill their children. Children will beat and kill their fathers and their mothers. This is coming to pass. Everything that Christ is saying here is coming to pass. In verse, I put them to death in verse 13. You'll be hated by all. Why? It's my mistake. Because you call, you dare to call yourself a Christian. You dare to stand in the public arena of today's society, where it says, how dare you say that a man cannot love a man? How dare you say it is wrong to, stay, to not stay married for all eternity? How dare you say it is wrong to take the miraculous gift of a baby that is fully formed within the womb and put something in it that could be acid or could chop it up and to murder that child and walk away with absolute no conscience? Hillary Clinton, if she had to go in the the United States won full-term abortions when the baby was coming out of the womb to have an injection in the back of its head. This past week there was a debate on TV with regards to that very issue of abortion. And one woman had the audacity to stand out in her public arena and say, I have gotten two abortions. And the little old what I thought to be a brethren lady with her hair up in a bun, which society would laugh at, he knew her scripture, said, no, 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 no. You murdered two babies. You killed two people. And yet society says it's fine. There is coming a day, as we looked at last week, where tribulation is going to get very bad on this earth, four Christians to stand on the word of God. It's written behind me because I believe that this is the one verse that we have to hold fast to. The grass fades, the flowers will wither away, but the word of our God will stand forever. It's about the word of God. Not about what you think is relevant, No matter what your interpretation is. The truth of the fact is, if you really seek after righteousness, you're going to be afraid. It's scriptural. It's it's in there for a reason. You 12 are going to be hated. You 12 are going to die. And everybody in this room here, you may not face death, no, but you may face death with regards to friendship. People might look at this church and say, we're old-fashioned, we're fuddy-duddy, we're whatever. Let them look at you and know you for one reason you will not and ever shall compromise. You will stand on what is true and what is biblical, even if it means that you lose the boyfriend, husband, girlfriend, whatever it is that wants to walk away. You will not compromise. You be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be sealed. What does that mean? That we have to muster up some strength to, to grit our teeth and to, to fight? No, Jesus makes it clear. You, you want to know who really is my disciple? They're going to last to the end. Crucify them, they'll proclaim me. Whip them, they'll proclaim me. Stone them, hang them, set them on fire, cut their tongues out, they will still point to the fact that I am real, the gospel is real, and the Bible is true. What you won't see, Is the fake and the phony. They'll go. They'll be burnt up quick. They'll not stand for what is true. They'll they'll confess that they're Christians. They'll confess that they desire righteousness. They'll, They'll confess that they want to stand on what is true, but you will see when persecution comes, even a small tiny bit into the workplace or into the family, they will run away and flee because they're nothing more than seeds to the fallen onto a, a, a rocky ground or fallen into thorny paths. Evidence from the fruit. They will not stand for righteousness, they will not stand for God's word, they will be compromisers. And they will go to church as long as they are entertained. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 All who desire to live godly lives in Christ will be persecuted. You will be persecuted if you stand for righteousness sake. The disciples were told that they were going to be delivered over to, over to governors, kings and synagogues, that they were going to be killed but they had one hope, that they would stand and last Because it's not by your strength, it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that you shall and will endure. How do you know that someone that you love is truly saved, they will endure? Yes, we'll fall. Yes, we'll stumble. But we'll get on our knees and cry to the Lord because we desire to be holy. For He is holy. Amen? Let's pray that.